I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show... I'm joined by die-hard bow hunter Skip Sly to discuss his top tactics for hunting the rut from Michigan to Iowa and points in between. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt Podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we're talking the rut My friends, it is sweet, sweet, oh, sweet, sweet, sweet November. It's here, guys. We are in the month of November. We've been waiting on it, dreaming of it. Now it's happening. And joining me today, we have got a guest who's going to help us learn how to kill that November buck, how to master the whitetail rut. We are talking to Skip Sly. And Skip's kind of like a... He's kind of like an under-the-radar big buck OG. He's this guy that a lot of super serious bow hunters all seem to know or have some connection to or they admire from afar, but he doesn't show up much on the on the TV shows or the podcast circuit and whatnot. He just kills big deer year after year after year. And what's what's particularly cool about Skip, I think, I might be biased here, but he started out in Michigan, just like me, just like a bunch of my pals you've heard from over the years. And he started traveling to other states. He went all over the place, learned how to kill deer in different kind of habitats, different kinds of regions, chased that big buck passion all the way to Iowa and ended up moving there where he is to this day. And now he hunts and manages a number of farms. Um, He does it very, very well. You might have seen one of the deer that I believe he had a hand in producing a 241 inch buck that his brother and he called angry. Uh, His brother, Aaron, ended up shooting that deer last year. Uh, it was featured in a film uh, 
over on the Onyx YouTube channel, I think. It got a lot of airtime there. Yeah, this buck was on the cover of North American Whitetail. It was all over the internet. Um, so that's the kind of deer these guys are chasing. Um, Skip also owns the website iowawhitetail.com, which is a, a terrific online message board and community for diehard deer hunters. I actually have spent a lot of time reading threads over there. Uh, even though I live in Michigan, I only hunt Iowa every few years, but uh, there's just a lot of great deer hunting ideas and stories over there uh, for anyone. So that's what Skip's up to. He has a tremendous pile of experience from his time hunting all over the place, both you know growing up and hunting in Michigan as a young adult and then traveling to you know Kansas, Illinois, Iowa, all these different spots. And today we cover a little bit of everything. We do some background in the beginning, get to know his story and kind of how he came up as a deer hunter and then dive, dive really deep into the rut covering, you know, everything from recommended stand sites to his calling strategies, scouting, uh, dialing in plans for hunting specific bucks during the rut and a whole bunch of stuff like that. But before we get skip on the line, it seemed like, you know, kicking off November, we needed to have a throwback kind of feel to this episode too. We have to get back to the wired hunt roots. We got to kind of get a little bit of that energy that wired to hunt is known for over the years when the OG speaking OGs, when the OG old co-host comes back on the show, Mr. Dan Johnson is going to make a surprise appearance here. Folks, me and my buddy, Dan, are going to take a little time here to do an intro for the show, talking a little bit about our plans for the upcoming rut, sharing a little bit of our insights and ideas leading into this most blessed month of the year. And um, fair warning for everyone, there's going to be some of that typical Dan Johnson banter about uh, family, about hunt life balance. Uh, you know, if you're a longtime listener, you know what I'm talking about. This is a this is some classic Mark and Dan discussion that we're about to have here. So, if you're new to the show, be warned it's going to get a little weird here for about 30 minutes, and then we will get to the main guest, which is Skip Sly, where we have nothing but great deer hunting conversation. So, I hope you enjoy this kickoff to November. I'm excited for this episode. I am excited for this month, and I am excited for you. It's going to be a great season. I hope by the time you're listening to this, shoot, it's November 3rd when this sucker drops. So maybe you've already got your buck on the ground. If so, fist bump, uh, handshake, high five, whatever your style is. And if you haven't yet, keep grinding. Stuff's going to come together. So let's get to my surprise guest, Mr. Dan Johnson. So my surprise special guest here to kick off the rut is none other than the man from down under, Dan Johnson. I don't know how you're the man from down under, but it sounded good, Dan. Good day, mate. <laughs> how, how are you, buddy? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm, I'm awesome. I figure there's no better way to kick off November yeah. than for you and me to be back together again, celebrating our favorite time of year. Are you feeling it? Are you excited? Are you amped? Where's the like the Dan Johnson woohoo? Yeah, so, man, it has just been a crazy week here. Right. So like, I'm not quite, don't, I'm, don't dude, I'm bring hyped. us down. Don't I'm bring in, us down, I'm, Dan. No, I know, but <laughs> here, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm at. I am. I'm fired up, but I'm looking out the window fired up. Okay. 
because there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen before I can get in the woods, unfortunately. And so sick kids, right? Horrible um, timing. Activities. Yeah, horrible timing. Uh, activities. Um, I still have tree stands and trail cameras I need to take down on a per, on a permission piece by me that I that I lost the farm on so I can use those tree stands on the new farm that I gained access to. I have to check trail cameras on my main farm that I've been hunting for 14 years. And so I see a list of, you know, I'm excited, but I see a list of things that I have to do before I can start the process of the grind, if that makes sense. It does. And I guess I can see how that chore list might be a little bit of a downer. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. yeah. So, so am I, am I, am I Ric Flair right now? Not quite, but I'm, I'm about to be. Okay. So I'm glad that that's still in the future. Like that, that will happen still. Uh, yeah. it will. Happen. So, so when did when did you lose this property and gain the new one? Has that happened in between since we talked last, or is that just something we hadn't talked about? Uh, it's probably something we haven't talked about. I found out that this I found out this summer that the landowner passed away. He was in his nineties, uh, so it wasn't any big shocker. Um, but right away after the funeral and everything, the family decided to sell the farm. And so they're in the process of selling it right now. And so I still have access to get my stuff out and I can even hunt it for a little bit if I want, but I'm trying to get all my stuff out before they, you know, shut the the book on this property and my tree stands are left out there. So I have three tree stands and two trail cameras that I need to get off. And uh, it's it's sucks because it's the property that is, 10 minutes from my house. Yeah, that's a bummer. Uh, so so real real quick, yeah. I, I want to like lay out real fast what my rut plans are, what your rut plans are. So how does this change your yeah. plans? Are you still just going to spend your rutcation down in your your main spot down south or or what? How's that new farm factor in? Yeah. The new farm factor <laughs> factors in big time now. And it is an additional hour and a half away from, or roughly two hours away from my main farm oh, really? that I've, you know, down by where I, yeah, by where I live. And so once we start talking about the Mecca of Iowa, this farm is in this three county area that dreams are made of type. So I got lucky with getting access to this farm. And believe it or not, it's not a lease. I'm not going through an outfitter. I have permission on this farm, um, and I and and I got it by blind luck, to be honest with you. And so I appreciate that, you know, appreciate this farm. But even this morning, I had two, one shooter for sure, one borderline shooter on cell cam fighting each other in front of the in front of the camera. Oh man! <laughs> so yeah, so I. My internal hypeness is at an all-time high level, but so I lost this farm, which is convenient. But I gained a farm that has the potential to get into that 170 category that you know everybody dreams about, and so I, I'm I'm excited. Oh uh, wow, yeah, that is exciting. So so hold on, the main farm that you've yeah. been on for 14 years. That's already pretty mecca. I mean, that's yes. like in the neighborhood of some of the best of the best out there, right? Uh, 
is this is this actually right. noticeably better than that? Yes. <laughs> wow. Like 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 undoubtedly yes. Dude. Like like there's mature deer on it. It's hard it's going to be hard to access cuz I can only access it through like a 16 a 16 foot gap in a fence that uh, like tractors and stuff can drive through. And then then it's surrounded by other private that I have not, I I have no access in. So I I can only access it through one way, but let's, I'll put it to you this way. There are three-year-old deer that are on this property that are gigantic. And if I was a land manager, I would be passing, passing these deer. If he shows up, I'll probably shoot him just because of the sheer size of his antlers. But I hope he doesn't show up and makes it through the year. So he's a four-year-old next year, you know, like that, that type of scenario. And I'm not saying this to like brag. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you, like, that's how lucky I got with gaining access to this farm. So it's like you went from being married to, uh, I don't know who's like the top notch thing right now. I'm I'm struggling. I pay so much attention to deer. I don't really pay attention to pop culture. This this metaphor isn't going to work. I guess um, you went from living in a mansion. Yeah, I, yeah. You, I you went from living in a mansion <laughs> in. Uh, this one's not going to work either. Anyway, you found the best place in the world. It sounds no, like here, <laughs> I, I have it. Here, here's here's what it here's what happened. I went to hunting a really good farm in Iowa to hunting an even better farm <laughs> yeah, in Iowa. It. I mean. <laughs> That's, that's exactly what it is. So, um, so, but, but with that said, I still don't have, uh, I still don't have any Intel, uh, cause I haven't checked any trail cameras on my main farm yet. Uh, cell cams are dead. And so I haven't, man, it's been like uh, two months since the, the cell cams, I haven't been there in two months. And so I, I have to, I want to make sure that before I go all cards in on this new farm that there's not a a really good deer on the main farm that is already set up basically right i know everything about the the main farm and and how to access it and and where to go i need to check some cameras to make sure basically to commit on where i want to start out at at least yeah okay so this is nuts i hate you uh but um yeah. What's your ruck, what's you your what's your ruckation? Like what how much time do you have? When do you get to start? And and so is your start date gonna be like his first day you drive down to the main farm, pull cameras, see inventory, see what's going on, and then you're gonna make a, a, a game time decision right then? Is that is that what's gonna happen? This afternoon, I'm gonna be able to go take the tree stands and trail cameras down on the on the farm that I lost. Tomorrow is gonna be a day trip down to the main farm. For one thing only, and that is to replace batteries and check SD cards and then come back home, do the Halloween thing, do the the activities thing. And then starting actually on, I'm going to get the kids on the bus on November 3rd, which is a Thursday. And that is going to kick off my rutcation. What's your, your like plan A plan of attack for this season when it comes to the rut if you had to be like this is my number one thing i'm planning on doing whether this is on your main farm or the new taj mahal 
do you have something in mind? Like, man, I really think I'm going to stick to what's been working these last few years and hunt these doe bedding areas. Or do you have some different approach that you want to try this year? Like what's, what's plan A? No, the, the approach is to do the same exact thing that I do have, have done every year. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm on a, I'm on a streak of seven years in a row connecting on a, on what I am going to call a shoot, like what I justify as a shooter caliber deer found success by rotating tree stands, by getting in good terrain features, by hunting doe groups and having impeccable access routes to those locations. And once I get in the tree, then that's when I roll the dice with wind direction and and uh that's that is where i get aggressive not necessarily with access routes and so i just i put in my time i make a judgment call on if this area is good or do i need to bounce and go to a different area uh, on the same farm or now i have now another thing i have to think about is is the new farm gonna trump the old farm or because of this, how small it is. I mean, it's, it's like 160 acres, but it is tall and narrow. And all of the, all of the, I would say action is on the West side of the farm. And the East side of the farm is just like a mowed grass field. All right. And so now I have to say, all right, am I going to, am I going to have to bounce back and forth between these two farms? Am I going to have to you know, drive two and a half hours to, to the, uh, to the main farm and then wait for the wind to change and then head back to the other farm. Because if there's any East in, in any forecast, which I'm going to be getting the first handful of days in November, that the new farm isn't going to be an option. Like anything East, I, I, I don't feel I'll be able to, to get away with. So once it gets out of the West, a straight North or a straight South, yes. But anything out of the east is, is just really going to be dangerous. So it a lot of it depends on wind direction, and a lot of it depends on what the trail cameras on the the main farm, the old farm, tell me right off the bat of where I'm going to kick things off. Hmm. Okay, so a lot up in the air, like very, very much yeah. a game time decision kind of plan you've got here going into rotation. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like I have, I've always told myself I, I make all these plans. Right. I say, okay, the first week I'm doing this, the second week, the rut, the pre-rut, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. But every every year it I I get to this point and there's no plan. It's just once you get the opportunity to get in the woods, make the best possible decisions with the the conditions that you have and and just cycle through that. And there there you go. You know, you just you keep you just make the best judgment call with the best conditions and that usually leads me to a spot where there's there's deer movement well you know our 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 guest today uh actually has kind of a a similar take on how he hunts the rut for specifically he's usually after like a specific super mature buck and he's found a lot of times like he just needs to know he's in the zone like if he can get a picture Mm -hmm. or a couple pictures that tell him like all right the buck's in this basic zone then he has like four or five, six different spots, and he'll just kind of rotate around that little core area, that 10 acres or whatever, Back. and just keep cycling. And he doesn't overcomplicate it. He doesn't try to obsess over, well, is it is it going to be in this specific spot today or this specific spot because of the wind? He's just going to slowly cycle through 
this core area because he knows the Bucks in there now, and he'll eventually chip away at it, and then eventually he gets his opportunity. Kind of sounds like you're not too far off that. Right. I mean, it's the exact same thing. Last year's Buck was the exact same thing. I had uh, one, two, three trail cam, uh, yeah, three trail camera pictures of the deer I eventually shot, and. I've talked about this on this podcast before with you, Mark, where I, you know, I, I put dots on a map, then I draw a line in those yeah, dots. The, da- the, it the Dan Johnson to- dots on a map with lines connected them in circles approach. Yes. Yes, exactly. I and so I did that, that again. Trademark that. Yeah, yep. Uh, that should be on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so you did that again. Right. So I did it again. And sure enough, I put myself right in a really good terrain feature and he showed up. And luckily he showed up like for me, luckily he showed up on the first time into that, into that stand, but that's kind of how I do it. I, I, I don't necessarily say I'm going after a specific deer. I will locate a specific deer and go after him. But if another one shows up, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm not going to not shoot a, uh, a shooter caliber deer. And so that's really the approach, man. It, it just, it's, it's, it's not, it's not bullet pointed. It's more fluid. Yeah. Hey, if it works, don't, you know, don't fix it if it ain't broke. So I, uh, that's right. What about you, man? Like, are you're done in Michigan, right? Because you're not shooting a second buck at home. Well, so what's yeah, your rut? So my rut, I take off this weekend and we'll be heading to Nebraska and then Ohio. So right. the Nebraska hunt uh, will be kind of in the same general area as I've hunted the last few years. Well, I hunted there last year and then like three, four years before that hunted there. Um, so there's some public land I can hunt. And then I also got permission on some private that's uh, kind of down down from that public. So plan or, or starting points, Nebraska. This is like river bottom stuff with grassy hills and plains and the outside and then a little bit of cover along the river. So it sets up like really cool for the rut because there's not a lot of cover. And these deer, if they're going to yeah. cruise, they're, they're mostly going to be staying along that cover. Like the doe bedding is in these thin little strips along that water. Yeah. So, you know, you, you couldn't get much more simple of a setup for the rut. They're going to be cruising the river. You got to be along the river and then they're going to cruise by. So it sets up nicely for that. It sets up nicely for decoying and calling because it's a lot of open, visible space, which I really enjoy. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to bring my full decoy. going to bring the rattling horns, going to bring the grunt tube, hopefully get eyes on something and make some noise. Uh, I'm going to bring the handheld decoy, which I tried for the first time last year. And if I see a situation that, you know, that really works well for. And, and the situation that supposedly this works the best with is when you have a buck locked on a doe and like you can spot them like locked down somewhere or bedded somewhere. Then you can stalk in close and pop up that decoy. If I see that, I'll try that. Um, but I'm not going to force the issue. Like last year, I forced that. Like that was the only thing I did the whole trip. This year, I'm going to start in a tree. So I'm going to bring the saddle set up. I'm going to sit these little pinch points along the river um, by that doe bedding and hopefully catch something cruising. But you know, we'll have options and, uh, yeah, there's some, there's some good deer out there. There's not, you know, I'm not counting on a giant, but, uh, you know, I, I think I've got a good chance at a, just like a nice, decent, mature buck, um, which I'd be, yeah. I'd be stoked about out there. And, uh, and then whenever I finish up there, I'm going to drive straight to Ohio and, uh, 
had like a long roundabout way of getting a piece in Ohio this year. It all came together really last minute. Um, like in October after the season had already started, um, me and a buddy thought we were going to get on a piece down in one part of the state. And then for a whole bunch of weird reasons that fell through like a week into October. And so like the second week of October, then I had another opportunity kind of pop up and that ended up working out. So what that led me to was like mid October, basically picking up this new, it's like two little parcels down right by where I used to hunt back in the glory days down there in Ohio. Um, literally like just a couple properties down the road from me and Furter's old spot. So that's okay. exciting. Cause I know that neighborhood was like really good. Like there was always really good deer in the area. Um, like there were some giants in the area that we'd see in the summer and that we got some pictures of. So, so I'm back in that neighborhood, which I'm really excited about. Um, the properties are kind of like, eh, like they're okay. Neither one of them. There's like I said, two parcels, um, totaling 117 acres between the two of them. But of like huntable stuff, it's really more like, yeah, I don't know, like 35, 40 acres maybe of actual huntable stuff. So, so minimal tree to stand locations. Yeah, minimal tree to stand locations. Um, like one of the, like the, there's like a 35 acre piece, and that piece is like two thirds open field, like not really huntable at all. But there's like 13, 14 acres of timber in one corner, and it's like really good. Like I, I went and scouted it. I had one day to go scout. And it's like epic bedding in there. So like that's a really good spot in there um, with with good multiple tree stand locations in that little 13 acre block of, of stuff that connects into bigger things. So that's a good little piece. Um, the other chunk is a, is a bigger chunk. It's like 74 acres or something like that. Um, but it's about half of it is fenced with cattle in it. And, you know, I've had mixed success hunting around cattle. Um it's, it's tough. Yeah, it can be tough. Uh, the fence is like a brand new fence that's like five foot high. It's like not your usual barbed wire fence that's like waist high. It's like that little bit higher one, and it's like five strands of barbed wire, super tight. Um, so, <laughs> so you have to be six four to cross it. Yeah, it's definitely not yeah. a crossable fence easily, and it's it's more like you know when you have those short bar old barbed wire fences out there, like you can see where there's low spots and the deer are always crossing and stuff. This is one of those fences yep. where you're like, ah, I don't know. Like a buck has to really have a good reason to cross this fence. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm a little worried like they might not ever cross the fence. And uh, yeah. unfortunately, like all the cover in that section is outside of the property. And like the fence is like all the tr- the fence is inside the trees of the field. So it's like basically a cow pasture. And all the- I could see a bunch of deer, I'm sure. But am I ever going to be able to call something over a five foot and a half foot? fence or whatever this I, I don't know so that that chunk there i'm much less confident in after walking it um compared to what it looked like on the map but uh the bottom half of the property does have like a small chunk of timber like six seven acres down the bottom that attaches to a piece that's a, like a sanctuary like a 2500 acre sanctuary so that the, the the redeeming quality of this whole thing is that i'm tucked in really close to this sanctuary that I know has big deer that don't get touched. So I just need, you know, some of that stuff to trickle over into my little corner. And that's, that's what I'm going to be banking on with that. So that's like a big wild card. I don't, I don't, I know I've got the potential for something really cool to happen, but I also could see these two little spots being, you know, really, really hit or miss. Um, but it was a last minute pickup and I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, throw a, 
throw a dart and see what happens. Yeah. So well, that's, at least you you have the yeah, at least you have the layout right. I mean, it sounds to me like, and you and I both know just from hunting enough years that being next to a really good spot can make your spot really good. Yeah. Yeah. And especially during the rut, I mean, right. You know, any, anything's possible during the rut. So, so, you know, I, I told you my plan in Nebraska, my plan in Ohio is going to be, you know, depending on what cameras are telling me, if, if, if that little bedding chunk on the small property is on fire, um, and there's a good buck in there. I'll spend some time over there. If not, I'll try the piece that's next to the sanctuary and just, you know, be down as close as I can be to that sanctuary and have my glass up and hopefully catch a big buck cruising somewhere and rattle or grunt them in and, uh, get them to my side and, uh, just hope for some of that rut magic. Cause I don't have like the primo primo habitat and the stuff I can hunt, but I'm, I'm really close to it. So, um, yeah, you know, it's hard these days to get a really great spot unless you've got a ton of money you can throw at it or, uh, you know, get awesomely lucky like you did in that case. So I'm making the best of what I've got and, uh, and hoping the rut can, uh, can make it happen, but bedding areas and I don't really have funnels, but I'm gonna be hunting bedding areas and close to bedding areas and trying to call them my way is, is basically going to be the plan I can, I can use for my rut this year. Yeah. Well, you can always fall back. You can, you can always fall back on that, uh, that fawn distress call that I saw you use online the other day. <laughs> you probably got a chuckle out of that. <laughs> I got the biggest chuckle out of that. And as a matter of fact, um, I have been peer pressured into making fun of you because of it, because there's been like, there's, there was one guy who reached out and he, he said, Dan, if you do not make fun of Mark for this, I'm going to stop listening to both the Wired to Hunt and the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I know that's awesome. I, I know when I record, I'm like, this. I'm going to look like an idiot, but people wanted like to hear what it sounds like. Like, how do I, how do I demonstrate this and not look like a, I don't know, an idiot? <laughs> but you know what? You know what? As long as you're not doing it in front of like thousands of people online, as long as you're doing it right. in the privacy of your own deer stand, it works really well. So, so don't judge. You know, they have turkey and duck. They have turkey and duck calling competitions. I wonder if they're if you're going to kick off something and have like competitive fawn distress call competitions. I'd own that shit. I would absolutely own it. <laughs> you would dominate five time world champion Mark Kenyon. <laughs> yeah, man. If this whole podcast thing doesn't work out for me, that might be the next angle I take. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're buddy. like that guy from the movies. I don't know if you've ever seen these movies because they came out before your parents were born, probably. But Police Academy, <laughs> there was that one. Yeah. <laughs> there was one guy who could make all those different noises with his mouth. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna bring up Point Break, but uh. <laughs> oh no, no, I, I can't reflect on Point Break right now. But I'm sure if you give me enough time, I can make some kind of connection. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get there. Uh, all right. Yeah. We got to shut this down because folks do want to hear from Skip Sly. You ever talked to Skip Sly before? You know who he is? Yeah, dude. I know Skip. He's from Iowa. I know. He's he's one of those guys down in your neck of the woods who hunts an amazing Iowa farm. Um, well, he's coming on the show next. So uh, we should probably wrap this up so people can hear from someone who, who really knows what they're doing more than you and me. Um, yep. But tell me this. 
now, after about 30 minutes of you and me talking about our rut plans, talking about the best time of the deer hunting season, do you have that Ric Flair energy now? Woo! There we go. All right, baby. There we go. Is the rut. The rut's here. It's sweet November, dude. This is it. Let's have some fun. Yeah. Good luck, Mark. Good luck to all the listeners. And uh, God, I hope everybody connects. Me too, man. Let's uh, let's circle back here in a week or two, share our success stories, huh? Sounds good. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. All right. Now with that out of the way, let's get to Skip. All right. Here with me on the show, we have got Skip Sly. Welcome to the show, Skip. Well, or, uh, thanks for having me. 
I uh, I appreciate making the time here. We're recording just at the end of October, so I know stuff's about to get crazy for you, I'm sure. It's about to get crazy for me, too. Um, but you're a guy who, you know, we've, we've not been able to talk before, but I've I've keep on hearing your name. I keep on seeing your name pop up kind of in under the radar stuff. You're not like uh, you're not on the Mark Drury like TV show kind of stuff, but like all the serious deer hunters know who Skip Sly is. I keep on getting people to say, hey, you got to talk to Skip. You got to talk to Skip. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of under the radar by design. Um, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more of a private person and my public persona, if you will, is more like I like helping younger hunters. Um, a lot of people helped me cause I started from scratch. My parents didn't hunt, my family didn't hunt. Uh, and I had a lot of mentors along the way. So that's kind of where I dive into the public sphere is how can I help people with hunting habitat, stuff like that. So that doesn't, you know, it doesn't put me in the public light and I, I really don't want to be in the public light so much. So I live a pretty private life. Um, but when, when there's an opportunity to help people, uh, I, you know, especially younger hunters who are, you know, just craving good information and stuff like that, that that's where I like my focus to be. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I'm thinking this is going to be one of those chances. There's gonna be a lot of people listening today, wanting, uh, wanting some quick tips and some, some ideas and some advice on how to, how to make it happen during the rut. But I, I gotta ask you one thing before we get into the nuts and bolts of stuff. Um, you were just telling me a second ago that we have a shared mutual friend, Andy May, who's one of the best yeah. bow hunters I know. He's the guy who's been on this podcast a lot. Um, you both were kind of coming up in Michigan at the same time as younger hunters figuring this stuff out. And you were just telling me off air how the two of you started traveling out of state and comparing notes and talking about, well, I'm going here, I'm going here. Um, and I thought that was very interesting that both of you kind of starting in a tough state like Michigan and then branching out. And you, of course, ended up moving to Iowa. Andy ended up staying here in Michigan. He's still doing the traveling on the weekends, you know, kind of weekend warrior kind of stuff. Can you give me like a five minute kind of background of, of what that journey looked like for you and how you ended up discovering what was outside of Michigan and what drove you to Iowa eventually? Yeah, it was, um, it really did have a lot to do with mutual connections like Andy. I mean, I think most people will find guys in, you know, similar ages or in similar kind of journeys in their, in their hunting journey, if you will, um, that are trying to see other things, trying to find better hunting, trying to have new experiences. And, um, that helped me a lot to be able to bounce things off of people. And, and even to this day when, you know, I'll talk to a hunter from Wisconsin or Minnesota or something, I'll, you know, I'll just ask them about where they're at. What's the hunting like? How's it changed in the last decade? Um, but to, um, to go back to the beginning there, I grew up in, um, in a county in Michigan that had very little timber, a lot of people and very few deer. So, um, I started hunting a little bit late in life. It was maybe 14 years old when I got into it and, um, nobody taught me how to hunt. My parents didn't hunt. I had to have my mom drop me off at places. And, um, so I got into it really late and I, by definition had to have won the award for the worst hunter on earth. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was absolutely terrible. Like I would just show up there cause I, I had no idea what I was doing. I would show up there with my bow and arrow and I would just take a nature walk. I didn't sit in tree stands. Uh, I didn't sit in blinds. I just walk around. And, and after 
one season of, uh, or the first part of the season of just seeing, I, I saw some tails. I saw some deer running away. I thought that was just cool. And then very quickly, you know, the education started and it didn't take long until I, until, you know, I got, got to know some folks who are like, you got to get up in a tree stand. I mean, this stuff was, I'm talking really basic things was new to me. So, um, you know, I'm 14 years old and finally learning how to climb up in a tree stand. Uh, and I did get, um, I did get a buck, uh, the first year I hunted by pretty much by miracle. And then, and then it just went from being the worst hunter on earth to going deeper in that rabbit hole and, and getting into better hunting and improving my skills, getting into new areas, getting on new farms and just trying to experience everything. So, uh, I got to hunt later in life when I was about 19. When I was in college, I hunted down in Southern Michigan. And then I lived in Traverse City for a little while. Uh, really tough hunting up there. And then my uncle had a place up in the UP, which I visited a few times, mainly just because it was the middle of nowhere. It was just cool to be out there. But um, that was a situation where you really could go a week without even seeing a deer, um, which was probably the worst scenario of all of them. And where I grew up in West Michigan wasn't far off, though. I mean, when you saw three, four, five bucks in a whole season, and they were a year and a half old, that was that was a good season, or that was a typical season. And then when I got down into the farm belt, I mean, that was the first time I saw two and a half year old deer. You know, getting down in Van Buren County, Kalamazoo mm -hmm. County. All of a sudden, I saw two and a half year old deer, and then all of a sudden, I saw a three and a half year old deer, and then we shot one. And then my brother, like I was telling you earlier, um, a few years later, all of a sudden he shot a hundred and seventy two inch eight point in southern Michigan, and our eyes were just opened. And that kind of, you know, that that event kind of started the floodgates of, wow, what else is out there? There's a 172-inch eight-point in Michigan, which was incredibly rare. I mean, just a freak thing. Um, but where else can we go? Where else is it uh, considerably better? Because all I had knew up until that point, be just before hunting in Van Buren and Kalamazoo, was, you know, Ottawa County, where you shot a year and a half old, maybe got a two-and-a-half-year-old. So it just, it just made me go, let's find better places. Let's go, let's go where it's managed better or where there's, where there actually is big deer. And, you know, the, all I knew was seeing some big deer on magazine covers and on, there really wasn't much for hunting shows back then either. So that kind of started my journey. And, and so you start exploring what was out there. You then started traveling. Where all did you travel to? What were the different States you tested in those years as you were, exploring the different regions and kind of chasing that whitetail passion? So I started out, my first year was, uh, we went to Illinois and this was back in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, buddy of mine said, Hey, there's this place called Pike Hill, Pike County, Illinois, and there's giant bucks there. So I started doing as much research as I could. I mean, I remember that's when I was just starting to like get on the internet and stuff. And um, so I would look Pike County up and I would start talking to people and, and they're like, yeah, it's, it's really good. And a lot of people from Michigan started going there and clearly, you know, it's never stopped and it's, it's became one of the most publicized counties in the country and probably had some problems because of it. Um, 
But I said, well, since Pike, and I did figure this out way back then. I said, if Pike's that publicized, let's maybe start out at um, some counties around there. So I just did some research, which had low populations of people, which had a lot of timber and which had a good composition of ag to timber. And I came up with, with Fulton and Schuyler County just by doing research. So once we had those two counties down where I said, I think this is where we should start them. We loaded our car up, my friend Ross and my brother went and we just started knocking on doors in, in the springtime. And everywhere we knocked, we got permission right out of the gate. It was the weirdest thing. Um, and then we, we kept knocking on doors and eventually we had a, a, bu a bunch of people that were like, well, you know, I let people hunt, but you got to pay me, you know, hundred dollars a day or $150 a day. So, I mean, I didn't have it. We didn't have it. So, so we finally got permission on two different, from two different farmers and they each had, um, kind of farms spread out all over like, Hey, there's an 80 over here. You can hunt. There's a 160 over here. Uh, we got 200 over there and, you know, some of it was pasture, some of it was timber. A lot of it was wide open fields, but there was enough big timber around there. And I said, okay, now we got, you know, possibly 10, 10 or 12 different little farms we can hunt. So let's get to work. And, you know, we scouted it all spring and hunted it for the first time, uh, that fall. And that was, that was my first experience being in a new state and, and learning what, what a lot different level of management was like. Yeah. And, uh, from there it just went crazy, huh? You, uh, yeah, so, kept so doing then, it. And... Yeah. I, I, I never, I didn't really like Illinois so much. I mean, everywhere we went, um, it shuffled really quick. Like every place we got permission on, you know, the next year it was leased up. I mean, it changed rapidly. I mean, rapidly within five years and we'd go to the next place and then Eventually, I'm, I knew what was coming, so I'd show up there with some money because that was my only option because I wanted to go there. Um, but there was just – it was really intensely pressured from out-of-state folks. Um, I saw it change really quickly. So we started going to uh, Kansas, Nebraska, and then Iowa, uh, and a few other states, uh, Missouri, um, so we, we bounced around to a lot of different places. And, you know, for me, I didn't, I didn't know which one would be good. I didn't know. Um, I didn't have a lot of expectations. I just knew there was a lot of potential. So, um, you know, fast forward, I'm in my uh, low twenties actually is when we started going to all these other places. I went to Northeast Kansas and we ended up shooting phenomenal bucks in Northeast Kansas. It was just fantastic. Uh, and clearly I fell in love with Iowa. Um, you know, the first, the very first time I hunted Iowa, uh, the first morning, I mean, this, <laughs> maybe it's why I wound up here. I don't know. But the first morning I shot a, um, like a half hour in the stand, I shot a hundred and 177 inch deer <laughs> and, Jeez. you know, just points all over. I mean, it was, it spoiled me. I'm like, yeah. Oh my goodness. I hunt this state for a half hour and I shot a 177. This, this is the greatest place on earth. <laughs> clearly, clearly that was a fluke, but, um, yeah, I fell in love with Iowa right out of the gate and I still, I still will go out to Kansas. I love Kansas. Um, it'd be my, my next 
next place of passion and, and where I'd go if I couldn't hunt Iowa. Um, I don't think, uh, personally, I don't think somebody could pay me enough to go back and hunt Michigan. I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, but I mean, I love it. I love it out here. And now I live in Iowa, I raised my family in Iowa and I have farms in Iowa, but, um, so I'm in a really good spot now, but you know, that's the progression of over 20 years. I mean, 25 years of going from the absolute worst hunting scenario I can imagine, um, to one of the, the better ones. Um, and there still is, I mean, in several States, I mean, there's some amazing pockets to be found out there. Uh, it just takes the motivation and time to seek them out and to learn them and, and to, to put the years into, um, to figure them out and hunt them. Yeah. Well, I love this, this background that you bring to the table. And the reason why I kind of wanted to start there is that there's a lot of folks who share deer hunting advice, uh, on TV shows or podcasts or who write articles and yep. they have only ever hunted in Iowa or only ever hunted in Illinois, or they, they grew up in Kansas and that's where all their experiences. And so all of their advice, all of their, you know, everything they're bringing to the table is just on that kind of deer. And as you know, yep. it's a different situation in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Georgia or New York state, whatever it is. So I love Absolutely. that. I, I love that you have this experience in both. And I so guess the people in Iowa, there is a lot of people or Kansas or Ohio. There's a lot of people from Michigan actually, or Wisconsin or Minnesota or Pennsylvania that have moved to these areas from those really hard to hunt States. And and I'm not necessarily, I'm not talking about myself, but those people who have had to grind it out in those really hard states to hunt who are successful there, when they come to a place like Iowa or Kansas or Ohio or um, parts of Illinois yet, uh, and they hunt there, they usually flourish because they've, they've had to grind it out in the toughest environment known. And then when you put them in an environment that's, I mean, has a lot of potential, they they do really, really well. And they oftentimes do better than the folks who have lived here forever. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought that these are great training grounds, really, really good places to train up. Absolutely. So let's then explore a couple things you've found over the years. We're we're talking the rut. This is coming out like right smack dab at the beginning of the best time of year for folks across the country hunting during the rut. First thing I'm curious about is how would someone be hunting the rut differently in a state like Michigan versus a state like Iowa. Let, let's talk about if you had to. I know you, would, you wouldn't do it even if somebody paid you, but if you had to go back to Michigan, knowing what you know about it back there, what you learned, what did work for you in those years, what would be some of the things that you'd be doing there that might be different than all the guys on TV are saying about hunting in Iowa or Illinois? Yeah, and, and you know, what, what I, and I listen occasionally to what a lot of the guys say on TV and it, there's some good advice out there, but I would say you'd have to sift through it. Um, and 75% of it is usually, a, I, I wouldn't pay attention to a lot of it. Um, so that, that's really tough to sift through things when you're just hearing it on TV, or if you're just hearing it from someone who just wants to sell you something, that's tough. But, um, you know, going, going to Michigan, if I had to start out back there, um, I mean, clearly, if if I had to do it, I clearly would target areas that uh, have the best whitetail habitat, have the best age structure and the best potential. 
this is if you're going for a mature buck or a, a better scoring buck, stuff like that. Um, and clearly, I think most people would know, hey, let's target the southern tier of the state. So so we've got a geographical target. And, you know, that's that southern tier is considerably better, in my opinion, than the rest of the state. Uh, so with that, I think generally our approach, especially when I was younger, um, was kind of the the shotgun approach where we didn't we didn't just bank on one farm. I mean, we had to play a numbers game. We had, it was a numbers game for us. It was, you know, being out in the springtime and, you know, putting in the work to say, Hey, you know, it was just me and my one brother at the time, but Hey, we got 40 spots picked out. That took a lot of time. I mean, it took a lot of knocking on doors and we went to a, a lot of places that were crowded and well, we already got, five guys hunting in there. And at the time we'd say, well, you know, we're, we're okay with that. And um, so we'd find all these different places, anywhere we could get in. I mean, it wasn't uh, necessarily really well managed farms. I mean, it was just by permission. So after that, I think the game for us in Michigan just became one, a numbers game. Like I said, just having a lot of setups, um, that were done right, uh, deep in, deep into the timber would be an example. And, and one thing I think that, that helped us be successful in Michigan, uh, that we don't have to do necessarily in Iowa as much, um, was we had to hunt around the people. So where the people were, we avoided that, you know, you go out to like a, um, a lake and you don't know what you're doing fishing and people see other boats and they go towards those boats. Well, that's where the fish are. Well, with hunting, when we saw people in certain areas, we would try and avoid that. And we just try and go, okay, how far back can we get? And where can we find these spots that are killer? And I can define what killer is. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of variables there, but how can we find these killer spots and how can we find 20 of them? I mean, it's a lot of work. Anybody can do it anywhere. You can you can do this. It was a lot of work. So how can we find 20 different killer spots that don't have five tree stands hung around them already? And that was a really hard task in Michigan, really hard, but it can be done. It can be replicated over and over and over. So I would say my brother and I probably had 20, maybe even 30 spots picked out across as many farms as we could, 10 farms in Southern Michigan. And, you know, that would be year one. So, Hey, we got 20, 30 spots. I'd say 30. Um, and then the next year we'd whittle it down to, Hey, the, you know, we, we take 10 of those spots and go, eh, we, those aren't good. Those were not well thought out spots, a lot of problems or just didn't have luck. And we tweak them and we try and add five and 10 more good spots, but we generally would go back to, extremely thick cover um terrain changes within the timber you know massive sign if you could find scrape lines rub lines whatever it was just differences way back in there um and that could be so many different scenarios way back in the timber uh but the obvious spots we personally kind of avoided them like hey this timber right here gets narrow going into a um into a couple fingers. It's a natural funnel. We didn't really hunt that because usually there was three, four or five tree stands there already. They either screwed the spot up or the deer that was in there was already dead. 
So, so I would say, um, you know, long story made short, hunting around the hunters was critical and just getting back into those, um, those beaten up areas as, as deep and overlooked as possible with, uh, with the best sign was, was our model for success back in Michigan. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Now those obvious kinds of funnels and things like that, when you're hunting in a lower pressure state, like in Iowa, you can still hunt those in your neck of the woods now though, right? Absolutely. And we had to retrain ourselves when we got out here and, um, and there's even different, different tiers between, you know, when we came to Iowa, Hey, yeah, it was the same thing to some extent. Yeah. You can hunt this 80 acres. There is two other guys hunting there. There's three other guys hunting there. Um, but there was generally more, more bucks, more, a better age class of bucks. And you could just get away with a little bit more just due to the fact that there, there simply was just more older bucks. So if one guy tagged out, there was still probably another mature buck in there or an older buck in there. So, yeah, I mean, we, we did the same thing in Iowa, right? When we got here, we just, we'd hike way back in there. Um, and sometimes it was on public land. Sometimes it was on permission, but we just, we were so, so wired to hike way the heck back in there. And we had great success doing it, but then we realized, Hey, we don't necessarily always have to do that. And, you know, from there, that was, you know, 20 years ago, um, to now it's, it's still an evolution of how, how we do things. And I'm changing things even now. And five years from now, I'll hunt differently than I hunt now. And I'll learn new things. I mean, this, the learning on this never ends. And there's, like I was talking to you earlier, there's no magic answer. If you do this, if you use this product, if you hunt this spot, this type of spot, you're going to shoot a mature ear. It isn't. It isn't that simple at all. Yeah. You know, one of the things when folks talk about the rut, you hear a lot about is, you know, generically high level people will say, well, you got to hunt funnels or you got to hunt doe bedding areas and you got to put in a lot of time. And and that's true. All true. And I say the same thing, the, the, the basic principle of it, but it's a lot harder for especially newer hunters to hear that and then find something like that on the ground that actually matches up. And they're like, Oh yeah, this is the thing. Um, and while you were just talking, you're mentioning like you're looking for these killer spots and you'd have 20 or 30 of these killer spots. It got me thinking that it could be, it might be really interesting and helpful for you to just describe like in detail, a few of your killer rut spots now. And like, why, like specifically why this spot works so well for the rut what kind of situation would you hunt this kind of setup in? Um, because getting these like clear examples sometimes can illustrate a concept so much better than just generically being like, well, hunt tight pinches of timber, yada, yada. Are there any setups that specifically come to mind when you think of your best rut setups that, you know, have worked for you time and time again that we could talk through? Yeah, I've got tree stands that I've had out for a decade now. Um, starting out, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of times we were just moving around. We rarely hunted the same farm more than a year or two. So now I've had the luxury of hunting the same farms for decades. And, and a lot of my sets, I got to go change the straps, put a, a chain on them because I don't know when I'm going to get back there. And I don't want the tree stand to grow into the tree, but it's just a proven spot over and over and over and over. And, you know, when I visualize all these spots, um, I don't necessarily want folks to get caught up on trying to understand exactly what I'm describing because there's so many diverse types of killer spots I have. I mean, I've got this spot where the river just bends the right way and it just, 
it funnels these deer um, towards this end of the timber. And then there's this, this natural um, kind of washout of the, the creek bank where every deer will cross. And then you go, you go down the river from that crossing and it's just a wall on the, um, on the river. It's just a wall where the deer can't get up it. So, so you found, you know, a 200, it's probably 200 yards of wall. And then this major spot where the river bends that naturally funnels them around and they're naturally coming up this river bank. And I mean, it's just a highway there. And then it intersects another trail within there. So you get there and you go, look at this massive trail, which is very basic. I mean, there's a massive trail. Doesn't mean there's a giant deer there. Doesn't mean um, you're going to kill a deer there if you sit there, but hey, there is a lot of traffic. And then you found this intersecting trail. Uh, and then beyond that, you follow it back in and there's just, you know, rubs and scrapes. And then, and then it, it goes into a, um, into a really thick bedding area or kind of swampy type of area. So there's all these cover changes. Well, um, it's just so torn up and I can access it reasonably well that during the rut, if you sit on a spot with that much traffic, you're going to see a lot of deer. So that just puts kind of the odds in your favor. And I've got another spot like that where it's kind of in the bottom, um, off of a ridge. And my, my worry there at the time, a decade ago was that my winds were going to swirl. And every time I went in there with like a little, um, milkweed or, or whatever, or a little, uh, thing to check the wind, I would notice for whatever reason, this spot, my thermals would just get sucked up and I can still hunt there any day during the rut I want. And I don't hunt it very often, but, um, I never get winded there. And for whatever reason, my thermals go up, just how the, how the wind moves through that spot. But it's got like three ridges that all just kind of come down and all these paths off these three ridges just intersect by this tree stand. And then there's a big bedding area to the north. So they're all kind of, you know, those types of spots, I would say, are, are kind of deeper into the timber. Um, it's just an intersection of trails. It's a, it's a terrain change where you just, you just look at it and you just say, look at, look at the cover or look at the trails here. Look at the deer sign here. It's just every year it's the same. It's, it will, it will be a great spot 20 years from now. It'll be, it'll be a great spot this year. It'll be a great spot forever. Um, so I've got a lot of those spots and then the key and where I, th I think a lot of people maybe make some mistakes is, Hey, I got, I got two spots like that and they just hunt them over and over and over. A lot of guys do, or the common hunter does. Um, and the key is, is to have 20 spots like that. And, you know, now, um, I've got, I've got a lot of other spots that are simple, quite, quite a bit easier to hunt, but. I guess my general rule of thumb now, uh, without getting into like, hey, I'm hunting specific buck or, you know, hunting um, specific farm for reason is, you know, I probably have maybe five for just myself, maybe five tree stands that I can hunt on any given wind. So if there's a west wind, I got five different stands I can hunt. If there's an east wind, I have five different stands I can hunt, north wind, et cetera, et cetera. So I just have a lot of options. And I'm very, very careful now not to not to overpressure anything. Even in Iowa, even in Iowa, it still is done. There's a ton of mistakes done in Iowa. What about during the rut? That idea of overpressuring a spot. Would you say you can get away with more of that during this time of year than you know early in October? 
I mean, two, three hunts has got, would you say that's less of a big deal than two, three days in a row on October 1st through 3rd? Yes. If it's, if it's just yourself, if, if, if it's just you in this secluded spot, maybe it's way the heck back in public, which does exist here. I mean, there's, there's some two mile hikes out on some big public tracks out here um, where you can, you can occasionally find the spot where there really isn't a lot of other hunting pressure. So if it's just you, yeah, I mean, two, three, maybe even four hunts, um, in a really ideal spot. And if you're, you're kind of going, Hey, I want to hunt this spot because just because I know it's a good spot. I know there's generally is mature bucks on this farm or a mature buck on this farm that may use it. Um, you know, three, four five hunts, I think is probably fine. And then, you know, if, if you want to be, uh, more aggressive about it and probably smarter about it, you know, those, those spots like that, it probably advantageous to get in there early in the morning and stay till the whole day. I mean, it really is not benefiting you to, at all if you can. And I did this a lot more when I was younger and I do it a lot less now just because I don't know, different reasons, but if you can stay there all day, it's very, very worthwhile, uh, especially in, in states like um, Iowa or, or even Michigan when, when the deer are really running. I mean, there's been a lot of instances where it's 1030 and all of a sudden, you know, I'm bored out of my mind, I think. And all of a sudden I see the deer I want to shoot or, or one o'clock. I mean, yeah. so yeah, three, four five times on an ideal spot. If somebody else isn't, isn't goofing it up, I think is very viable. So there's that, there's, there's kind of two schools of thought on that kind of scenario during the rut. There's, there's one school that say, all right, if you've got this spot that you have really, really high confidence in, if you hunt it three days in a row all day, eventually that buck will come through while the other school will say, no, you should be constantly bouncing from hot sign to hot sign. If you have a bad day, don't sit there anymore because you know, the rut, the, the rut fest might be a half mile away down on the other side. You got to be bouncing around till you find the hot action. If you had to choose between those two choices, either volume hunting, a spot you have really high confidence in for that three, four day window or bounce, 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 which would you say is the better chance for consistent rut success? Um, I would say if you go in there the first day and you see your target buck and you just aren't able to get them into range for whatever reason, I'd go back to that spot. If you're in there the first day in your hot spot, and you're seeing just a lot of activity and you don't feel like you screwed anything up, I would go back. If you go into your target spot and it's extremely slow, um, or, you know, you feel like, man, I just bumped a whole lot of deer getting in and out of here, or a lot of deer winded me, you know, I would, I would move. So clearly there's not a right or a wrong answer here. I mean, the guy that says you should move if he, you know, he could get proved wrong by the guy that stays because there's no perfect answer here. But, um, I think by the end of day one, I would adjust based on what I see. If I'm seeing a lot of mature deer, if I'm seeing a lot of deer period, and I'm like, this, this spot is on fire, stay put. If it's iffy, um, or problematic at all, I'd get out of there and try something different. Okay. What about if you're after a specific deer? You know, I know that's something that, that you, it sounds like have done over the years, plenty of times. How does your approach to all of this, picking a killer spot, determining whether or not you're going to bounce around from location to location or stick it out when you're shifting from just, Oh, I want a good buck to, I want that buck. 
How does your yep. rut strategy change? Drastically. So um, I would say I've been hunting 30 years, and I would say it's the last 10 years when I transitioned from almost exclusively hunting for a good buck that I didn't know what he was. I, I had no idea what this buck looked like. I just knew I had to go in, age a buck, look at him and go, yep, I want to shoot that deer, you know? And clearly a lot of that time was before trail cameras were around. Um, to the last 10 years going, hey, these are the bucks I want to go after. And when I find a buck I want to go after or a handful of bucks I go after, um, you know, my approach of, hey, have permission on five, six, seven farms, you know, there's probably a handful of those farms I really won't even hunt unless I'm just kind of like, I want to burn a day or, you know, I just want to sit or, or do an observation stand at a, at a farm that I don't think has my target buck. So um, I'll just focus on that farm or farms where that mature buck lives. And then I kill a lot, probably half of the mature deer I now I do now in October, um, which somewhat can be related to the rut. I mean, these, these deer are getting a little more aggressive. They're not tolerating other bucks. So I kill probably half of them in October. And then when it gets in November, my uh, strategy changes drastically. I go clearly from the deer that is traveling, you know, 300 yards from bedding to food. And he's kind of in that, that scraped rub and food pattern, you know, just a small travel area. Now it's just expanding and it's just getting larger and larger every day, which is good and bad. So if I have a radius of where I say, Hey, this deer lives, I want to have, you know, maybe five, six stands in that area for different winds. And for me, it's a little bit of a crapshoot, but it's a little bit going, okay, these are the best trails. Um, this is the best, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's a spot where this, this buck is cruising the edge of a field 50 yards in there, checking all the, um, the trails in and out of there for does, you know, just setting the whole line, you know, obvious spots like, okay, I know I can hit a buck on this wind cruising this timbered edge. And then there's a spot over on the other side of his range where, you know, there's a major crossing there. And then there's another spot that's kind of a funnel. And I'll just pick maybe five or six of the best spots I can come up with, which that's a variety of different types of spots that are in his core range. And let's just call it like, you know, an 80-acre core range of where that deer is. And I'll just try and rotate it unless unless I know, hey, I, I saw him here. And then I'll probably, you know, change it as needed or hang a stand as needed. But um I'll just kind of rotate in his core area and, and usually, you know, you put in the time, you do things correctly. You button, you, you cross your T's, dot your I's and do th and hunt hard. Usually you're going to get a glimpse of that deer. Um, unless it gets too late into the rut where a lot of these deer, who knows where they go sometimes. I mean, there's deer that I, I've, you know, on my home farm that I'm like, I know this deer's personality. I know uh, a lot about where this deer lives and there are certain periods where it's like, man, you caught that window where you just don't know where he is. I mean, he could be locked down in a weird spot with a doe that you're going to have no chance of getting him really. Um, he could be a half a mile away, two miles away, whatever. But that that's when I think it gets the most difficult 
is when it gets deep into the rut um, on, on hunting a specific buck. So, so to circle back and make my long, long winded answer shorter, um, earlier in the rut, early November, late October, uh, up until maybe November seven or eight, when they really are with does, I would say finding an 80 to hundred acre core area and just kind of having that, that area around that box geography pinned down with at least five or six different spots that you're like, I think there's a good chance he'll travel through here. I think there's a good chance I can see him here. Or, you know, this is the type of scenario where he he's going to be cruising in here looking for does. Mm-hmm. Now, what about that next phase? Once he gets to that with the doe phase, November 8th, 10th, 12th, 15th, and you're saying he, he might be gone, he might be locked on a doe, you just don't know. Uh, you still want to hunt him, though possibly what would you do in that situation then how do you make the best of that tougher situation so i got a deer um maybe five years ago um i bet i actually went back to hunting closer to food and a lot of times those bucks will take a doe and you know try and just put bring her into a weird spot for a reason weird spot as in other deer don't usually go there because he wants to just keep her out of sight well, there's sometimes there's those scenarios where you can't do anything about that. But I said, you know what? I want to try and find this buck. So I went back to hunting near food. And sure enough, this doe came from a totally different direction as all the other does and small bucks that I saw. I'm like, that's kind of odd that doe's coming from over there. It was like coming from like right by the road. And this doe comes into the bedding or into the, into, um, into this ag type area where a lot of the deer were feeding and right behind her was the buck I was after. I'm like, what in the world? They were bedded by the road. Well, she has to eat. She wanted to eat. And he, he, I could tell that this buck did not want to be there. He did not want to be by these all other deer and he didn't want to be by the other bucks. And sure enough, the other bucks, um, started coming in there and harassing the doe. He'd run them off and you could tell he didn't want to be there. Um, and he came about 50 yards away and just was on that doe. There was nothing I was going to do to call that buck off. I mean, I could, you know, potentially try and do like a, a little buck grunt to where it ticked them off. But I mean, it didn't work. And and if if I even did it, and he ended up just kind of getting her out of there. And I'm like, dang it, I missed my my opportunity. Well, ten minutes later, she said, "Hey, I want food," and she came back to that egg field. Um, and he was, it was just a lucky thing. I mean, he was right on right behind her and boom, 15 yards in front of my stand is where she walked. And I knew because she walked there, he was following. There's nothing he's going to do different. I mean, he is locked on this doe when I shot that deer at 15 yards. I mean, it was a, a six or seven year old buck. Um, and part of that, that's just luck. Uh, part of that is just changing my strategy a little bit. Um, and realizing that they're just going to be in odd areas a lot of times during that time. And that's what a lot of people will probably call the lockdown phase. And the lockdown phase means that buck is probably, uh, out with that doe in an odd spot. And the last thing I'd add to that, you know, when you're in the lockdown phase, um, it's kind of saying like most of the bucks are locked down. It doesn't mean all of them. And, I also understand like 
you know, that lockdown phase is going to last for two or three days. And there will be a light switch that happens where it's like, hey, he's done with that dough. Now he's looking for the next one. So I'm always kind of ready for that phase to change. And it, it is a very real thing that I see every year. You don't know when it's going to hit, but I definitely see that lockdown phase where it's very difficult hunting. My buddies are frustrated. You know, I get the text message. I'm not seeing anything. It's just like, stick with it. Stick with it. Um, give it a few days. Try a few new things. Try some new areas. You, you can't give up. So it, it gets to be a little bit of a mental game and a little bit of understanding that, you know, any mature buck that's locked down with a doe, it's still a matter of two or three days and he's going to come off that doe and he's going to become visible again. Yeah. So, so speaking of this whole buck locked on a doe situation, um, you know, I found, I think a lot of people have seen where when a buck does have a doe like that, they'll, they'll stick to a kind of tight spot. He'll, he'll get her in some little patch of cover and he'll want to keep her there as much as possible. She might go to feed here and there, but it seems like for that 24 or 48 hours or whatever it is, they'll, they'll be in a, in a zone. And some guys like to get really aggressive with that. And then if they see the buck like better with the doe, some guys will actually try to stalk in there uh, or other folks might say, okay, he was in that cover or he left that cover tonight. I'm going to be in that little one acre of, of cover, you know, tomorrow morning, an hour before daylight, and they're going to come back to it. Do you ever do something like that? Uh, or what do you do when you see a buck with a doe and you know, like, all right, he's on or now, um, they're going to be back there or do you not think so? Yeah, I mean, clearly, um, clearly no right or wrong answer here. I mean, if it's a situation where I'm like, man, they are right on, you know, there's a little hump before, uh, like if I was driving down the road by my farm and I noticed a giant buck was like in this little plum thicket, just kind of out in the middle of nowhere, like what in the world? Uh, which is what we see. I mean, that's when people notice this type of stuff. Like, why is there a buck out there always with a doe? Mm -hmm. And there's these weird spots. Well, if I knew like, Hey, you know, there was a way to stalk up really close and there was some kind of visual obstacle where I could get close. Absolutely, I'd give it a shot. Uh, how often does that happen? I mean, rarely. I maybe have done it one, maybe two times in my whole life. I'm just me personally. I'm just not super effective at that. Now, other guys might be just ridiculously talented at at um, stalking on a deer. And if you're if you're talented at at stalking a deer, um, I would say go for it. Of course. And it certainly is worth a shot. Uh, now, on the flip side of that, you know, I mean, if I saw it like at noon, I might I might try and hunt, hang a stand somewhere close to there where I think, you know, they're, pro they're probably not going to sit there the whole day. They're going to get up and go. Is there is there some kind of spot I could hang close by where I might be able to get them where I think they might go by? Um, or yes. Uh, you know, if there was a way to get in there, you know, super early the next morning in the dark and hang a stand and be close in there, it absolutely is worth a shot. I mean, when you've got that kind of intelligence, like I just saw a giant buck. I mean, you got it. You got to just try anything possible, um, whether it's stalking, whether it's setting up close by, whether it's setting up immediately. Um, I mean, that's that's for sure a case of getting aggressive when you have a target buck that you know of and you know exactly where he is. That's that's rare, great information. It's not easy, but it's awesome, awesome information to have. Yeah. So speaking of intel and, you know, getting that information, you can make a, make a decision 
figure out a hunt from. How do trail cameras factor into your rut hunting, if at all? Are, are they less important at that time of year? Are you religiously still studying them at that kind of, you know, in that first week or two of November? Or, or what's your data kind of analysis look sure. like? Sure. Um, my personal approach, which is different than everybody else's, everybody's got a, a different view on this. Um, I just want to know a buck's in the area. That's it. And if he's at an exact spot at such and such time, I mean, okay, especially during the rut, the, the very next day he's probably going to be in a slightly different spot. He might be in the exact same spot, but I just want to know he's in the area. And what works for me, which is different than everybody else, but what works for me, if he's in that area, then I any any given area, I've got five, six, seven spots picked around that area. And, and like I had alluded to before, like, you know, I've got to, I've got to stand for a West wind. I'm not, I'm not going to go to that spot where I think he's in the general area and hunt a spot that's blowing right into, into the bedding area or something like that. I'm still going to play the wind. Um, it's probably not going to be an absolutely perfect wind, but I'm still thinking of the wind. I'm still cognizant of the wind. I'm never going to beat the wind completely. Uh, unless you get a situation where your thermals are going up in the air. Um, so I'm thinking about the wind. I'm thinking about my entrance and exits. And I'm just probably spending my time rotating around that that current intel that I know this buck is in this area. Let's say it's 40 acres. And then just rotate my spots as close to where I think he is as possible. Hunting smart spots. Hunting you know, correctly. Um, and not making a host of mistakes that uh, I personally think a lot of people make every year. Hmm. What are those? What are those worst mistakes that folks make during the rut? What are some of those things that come to mind? So, I would say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get a little cliche here, but you know, your entrances and exits. We hear this all the time, but uh, you know, guys that just do not think about their entrances and exits, and they're walking through a pick cornfield in the morning when you know that there's all the deer are probably out there when it's dark and you're blowing the whole field up or walking out through, um, you know, when there's a, when there's a whole lot of deer out there, I mean, just, just pressuring the deer in general, even during the rut, I think is detrimental and hunting the same stand over and over and over is clearly detrimental. And these, these are kind of elementary things, but, at the same time, they're not because I see them done so much. And then, you know, you'll know this. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but guys probably know the guys were, you know, hey, I hear the guy across the fence. You know, it's uh, it's nine o'clock in the morning and he's rattled eight times already. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody knows that guy. Well, we know that at least I know you don't do that. Um, I don't do it. But yet. Every farm I've ever been on, there's that guy. So, you know, I would avoid that type of thing. Um, hey, man, but when I rattle, it seems like bucks come in. Sure, sure. You know, usually it's a three-year-old but uh, or a younger deer. Occasionally it works. I mean, I do rattle. But I would say limit your calling. Limit your rattling. Um, and then, you know, your tree stand setups. I mean, when I get into a farm and, you know, there's eight-foot-tall ladder stands – I look at a lot of these spots. I mean, I see them often, eight and 10 foot tall ladders. And I'm like, how in the world do you draw your bow Yeah, no. on a mature buck? It's crazy. So, 
you know, I would say I hunt on the, on the higher end of the spectrum. And I know there's a few buddies of mine out here, maybe that will hear this, like that have seen my stands and, and this is kind of a Michigan thing, but uh, <laughs> in Michigan, man, we got up there. We got up there because yeah. everybody hunted, a lot of guys hunted low. And I'm like, I don't want to be seen. I want to get any advantage I can with the scent. And I mean, uh, we were in the clouds up in Michigan and I've had to dial that back now that I came to Iowa, but, um, hunt high, limit your calling, watch your entrances and exits, rotate your spots, especially if you're, if you're putting pressure on those deer, um, you know, your scent control, I, I, if you don't think scent control works at all, fine, I don't care, but you know, don't be sloppy with your scent going out there with cigarette smell, gas smell, I mean, common sense stuff that a lot of guys can't avoid or it's tough for them to avoid. So, you know, if I go out there smelling like a slob uh, and I'm walking to my stand and I don't, and I'm touching everything and crossing all these trails and I smell awful, I'm, I'm going to burn that stuff out quickly. So, you know, it's kind of that checklist of 10, not, not two, it's 10 important things. Like don't do this. Don't go out there and do these obvious things. But a lot of guys, you know, will fall into like, Ooh, I'm, I'm, I did eight of those correctly, but I screwed up on two. You can't, if you want to do this consistently, if you want to get on mature bucks consistently, you can't make those two mistakes. You've got 10 mistakes you can make and you can't make any of them. Yeah. I mean, we're going to, I mean, nothing's perfect, but you're trying to minimize those mistakes and minimize those kind of obvious things like, well, everybody says this. Well, there isn't two things. There's 10 things and don't make those 10 mistakes and just, Keep doing it and doing it and doing it, you know, effective, good spots without making the mistakes. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Do not get burned out. This is a mental game. Understand that you may be kind of exhausted six, seven days into this, especially if you're hunting all day. It's, it's very hard on your body and your mind. Um, it's exhausting. I mean, I, I wind up kind of tired um, come November if I've hunted really hard, especially all dayers. It's like, well, I'm sitting. Why is it? Well, <laughs> it's, it's just really tough on you. So just understanding all that and pounding through it. And, you know, the guys that are mentally tough that can go hunt those ideal spots over and over and over that don't get frustrated and throw in the towel or, or stop their trip early are generally going to be vastly more successful. I mean, it's common sense, but it's still worth repeating. Very true. Have you found well, how do you handle the mental grind of that? I mean, you brought it up. It takes a lot of mental toughness and perseverance and even physical uh, perseverance and toughness to make it through, you know, a week or two grinding it during the rut day after day, all day, many times. Um, how do you handle that? What are the things you do when you find yourself really burnt out? How do you push through that? How do you, how do you make it through that? Yeah. Um, so I've definitely evolved and I would imagine that a lot of guys who are 20, I would suggest doing what I did it when I was in, I was 20 and I'm 44 now. Um, and a lot of guys, if you're listening in your, your twenties, you'll probably be more like me at 44. I mean, I've changed how I do things. I change how much I hunt. Um, I change how I just try and be a lot more efficient now. So um, now, and I'm, I'm in a position now where, you know, I live right here, you know, I live, I'm on my farm all year, so I can do a few things that other people can't. And I'll just list the things that maybe somebody can't, but maybe a few people are like, yeah, that does kind of make sense. And it sounds easy, but you know, um, 
I just try and be more efficient. Like if I notice um, the temperature is going to go up into the 70s in November, uh, can you still kill a mature buck then? Absolutely. But those are the days where I'm like, you know what? I'm probably going to take a few days off. It's in the 70s. It's like deer are walking around and running around like like us with a winter coat on in the summer. It's not comfortable. So the deer movement is going to be very suppressed. So I just say, you know, those those days that are not ideal, I just I take them off. And, um, you know, I I I kind of pick my days a little bit more on the weather and uh, the barometer, like the temperature and the barometer. I mean, I don't need an app. I just look at, hey, the temperature's going down, even if it was 70 and now it's it's 55. Well, 55 is still a touch warm. OK, that's fine. But the temperature went down. The barometer went up. I go out. Temperature goes up, barometer goes down. I don't go out, usually. Um, now, if you're in a situation where, hey, man, I took vacation. I took November 3 through 10 off. I have to go. Yeah, I would hunt every single day unless it's just a catastrophe. And I, I we used to go out when it was thunderstorming out. And hey, it's 40 mile an hour winds. We still went out. It, it was. Yeah, you never <laughs> know. Kind of, it, yeah, exactly. And we were just so intense back then. And now. I'll be honest now, you know, 20 years later, I don't do that. I just, Oh, oh great. I'm sleeping in. Uh, <laughs> I'm making a big breakfast. I'm going to relax. Um, so, you know, I would say what's changed is I'm a little more efficient. I pick my days more carefully. Uh, the days off, um, I try and enjoy them. I try and do something a little bit active. I think it's a little bit tough, maybe mentally for hunters when, you're like, hey, I'm sitting all day. I'm inactive. Well, especially if you're a guy that's used to being fairly active, that's you know, it's it's maybe good to have a day to relax and move around. And um, I'm making this up, and this isn't what people are going to do. But hypothetically, if I could take a day off that's like really warm and go pheasant hunting and like walk around a field and get get my blood going, um, get some exercise in, it's actually really good. For I think it's really good for like the long game of hunting and yeah. enduring it to just, you know, get yourself reinvigorated. I mean, technically if you, if you hunted hard for 10 days and we're sitting there, if you went back home and got a day in of a couple days in of exercise and going to the gym or whatever, and just getting back in the routine, you'd probably be right ready to go back at it again. Um, which is why I, you know, I, I don't think we usually ever had trips past about, 10 days because I knew we would just, we were so burnt out after about day 10 that now I've just kind of adapted and said, all right, I'm going to hunt in five, six, seven day segments yeah. and go really hard, but, but try and have a little variety. And, and man, if you can pick your vacation, like with any flexibility, like, Ooh, it's getting cold during this time. This is in, you know, a week out, pick your vacation. That is so advantageous. Yeah. Yeah, you know, another another take on that I, I've heard is uh I remember John and Chris Eberhart used to talk about this a lot. They would uh you know pick a morning or two during that rut where they would allow themselves to sleep in and you know they'd still get out in the woods by nine or ten, but they would hunt the whole day from that point on. And they, you know, they'd seen so much of that great activity on those rut mornings happening mid-morning anyways, that they could you know, reduce their burnout a little bit and still probably hunt the best parts of the day in their mind and um, still felt like they got a good day in that way. 
So I thought that was an interesting kind of similar to what you're saying there. I, I used to feel guilty about taking any time off during the rut, but I think if you can, you know, 10 straight days where you are not at your best might not be as good as nine days at your best with one day of rest. It allowed you to be really at your top mental fitness level. Yeah. And pick, pick your battles. I mean, you know, don't take the day off when, um, the temperature dips down 15 degrees and it's, you know, five mile an hour wind and it's crispy and you know, um, you know, the bucks are moving. I mean, clearly don't take that day off, but, uh, when it, you know, maybe it's during lockdown, maybe you're like, dang it. I have had a, a day where I hardly saw a deer. It's like the, the light switch went off. Yeah. That'd be a great day to change it up. Um, and you know, there is maybe the occasional guy that can be, I, I don't care. I'm just going to push through. And that was kind of us when we were in our twenties. And now, I mean, I could do it, but it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be probably the most effective thing. So yeah, I think, um, balance is really important and, and picking the right times to say, yeah, let's, let's take a pause, let's regroup, um, and let's, um, reinvigorate ourselves and, uh, be ready to go out, you know, in a day or, you know, the next day and hit it hard. Very, Very smart to have that balance. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You were talking a second ago about the mistakes folks often make, and one of those things you mentioned was overcalling, too too much rattling, that kind of thing. Um, I'd love to hear about what you think is the right way to do those two things, because this is that time of year. Everybody wants to be making noise out there. Um, how do you go about grunting? When do you do it? What's the right way to do it? And then same thing for rattling. I'd be curious about both. Sure. What works for me, um, and what works for me is different than what what somebody else might think or their experiences, but um, kind of my recipe for rattling and for grunting, I always have them in my pack and um, I do not do much blind rattling. When I do blind rattling or blind calling, it's maybe, maybe twice a day and it's maybe up till November 7 or yeah, probably six or seven is probably the the end of that. Um, And I, sometimes I don't, rattle at all. But if I'm rattling uh, seven times, 10 times in a day, no, 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 no. I I personally think you're doing yourself a major disadvantage. So I would say blind rattling, very limited, even in Iowa, Kansas, hey, there's lots of mature bucks. It works better. I mean, did we have a lot of, a lot of luck rattling in Michigan? No, not a lot. A little though, a little, actually, that's how my, my brother shot that uh, 170s inch eight point that was a mature old old deer in Michigan. I mean, just a rare animal. Um, he was at 50 or 60 yards, and he he saw the buck, and he did some light rattling and pulled him in. So that's when calling and rattling, I think, are the most beneficial. Is when you actually see the animal. So if I'm hunting a new area or an area I picked, I'm like, hey, this spot night might not be perfect but I can see a long ways. I can see over this giant CRP field or, you know, I can see up this hillside or across this ag field. I just, I only do it basically when I see that buck, I want to call in. And when I see that buck, I want to call in. I will, if it's real far away, I probably will start with rattling if it's, if it's a distance, cause I want to make sure he hears it and I'll know right away. If this deer is usually, I'll know if he's interested or not. And I'll hit the horns together where he clearly can't see it. He's not going to pick me off. I mean, that's, that's obvious, but you know, I do it in a way where this deer is not watching me rattle and I will just watch this deer extremely close and I'll know how he reacts. And he's either going to react three, one of three ways. He's going to either react and go, I don't care. I'm not interested at all and keep on his business or He's going to react and probably start coming right into me, which is clearly the most ideal. The third way he's going to react is he's going to go, I'm interested. And he's going to try and he's clearly going to try and swoop around or start kind of doing a moon shape towards my direction. And, and I'm okay with that too. And if he's interested, if I lose sight of him, I might rattle one more time. 
um, and then I might grab the grunt tube. And then I, if I still see him, if he's if he's interested in the horns, and you know he's slowly coming in, I might grunt and see how he reacts to that. And sometimes that just like is the, the last little perk, the last little nugget that they're like, "Yep, I'm coming in." And then and then it's just a matter of do I grunt again? Just what's it going to take to get him into range? Usually, if I've called twice and he's coming right at me, he's going to get to me. Um, so then I'm just you know slowing myself down. Uh, now it's all about the shot, calming myself down, the mental game, making the right shot. Do not release that arrow until you're ready. Slow, slow, slow. Um, but if he's kind of iffy or, you know, he's not going to come in range, now it's, you know, what else do I do to call? Do I grunt again? Um, do I lightly rattle, you know, and, and that's just getting slightly more risky the more you rattle. But um, I'll just call until I can get him to come in. So. Uh, that's how I've I've killed a lot of bucks is, is just visually seeing them um, and watching their attitude on how they react extremely carefully rattling or grunting um, and just and then basing the next move on how they react. And some bucks react uh, great and come in and some bucks are like, I want nothing to do with that. Uh, not interested. Sayonara. You're never going to see me again. So. Um, but I mean, we've killed a lot of deer, um, doing that. And I mean, the, the buck, my brother killed last year, uh, the giant, I mean, it was 240 inches, seven years old, uh, seven year old. Um, you know, that buck was at, I think 60 or 70 yards in, in mid October. Uh, and my, br my brother was just able to really lightly, he wasn't, he wasn't creating a fight or like a aggressive situation. He was just saying. There's another buck in your turf. That's it. There's another buck in your turf. And that pulled that buck into 15 yards in October. And in November, it's a little bit different. It's not just, hey, there's a buck in your turf. Now it's a buck that I hear a buck and he's getting ready to breed a doe. So they're just more aggressive. So just understanding there's differences between October and November. And then the last thing I would say about rattling and grunting is like, you know, your next phase or maybe certain hunts where you're like, hey, it's late November. I think late November, sight calling and rattling when you see a buck's effective, very effective too. Because um, they're usually cruising for a doe. But if I'm kind of finishing up my hunt for the morning, you know, hey, I'm going to go back in. It's 10 o'clock. That's a time when I'll do a blind rattle. I really don't have much to lose. Um and we've had a handful of cases. It's not like it's like, man, this works every year. But, you know, every five years where I'm like, I'm just about to pack up. I'm going to rattle or grunt one more time just for kind of the fun of it. I'm a little bit bored. And sometimes we just pull a buck out of its bed. It's bedded down for the day or, you know, it was just over the hill and boom, we pull it in and either see it or occasionally, you know, it's the buck you want to shoot. And we've shot him that way. So. Um, I would just say don't overdo it, but my my method that works for me is sight rattling and calling would be eighty to ninety percent of how I use calls and rattles. Yeah, is spe specifically when I see that deer, I want to shoot or pull in. Now, what about this? Is there any difference between your calling strategy when it's like one of these six or seven year old bucks that you're typically targeting now? 
versus if you were trying to call in a, a three or four year old buck, you know, you know, 20 years ago when you were targeting those deer, is it, is it different one way or the other at all? I don't notice much difference. I mean, they're either interested or they're not the six or seven year old buck. Um, just because I have the luxury now, just because I'm older, I have, I have my farms. Um, I know the deer and, you know, I get to know, it's not like I'm, I'm with them every day, clearly, but I get to know a little bit like, Hey, I saw this deer when he was two, three, four, and so on. I get to know their personalities and some deer are like people. They, they want to fight. They're aggressive. Um, they're maniacs. Uh, and certain deer are just very timid. So I think it's more of a deer personality thing. Um, certain three-year-olds are going to be very timid. Certain three-year-olds are going to just be extremely aggressive. Um, for a mature buck, you know, I would say over the majority of the time, they are filled with t- testosterone and they at least are willing to investigate or, hey, I, I'm willing to fight. I mean, they're almost all willing to fight. There's a few that are like, they're just timid, timid deer. And I would say that's the exception. But um, I would say it's more related to personality. And I think you're going to know. I think you're going to know when you rattle or grunt to that deer. You're going to see how he reacts. And, and it might be different how he reacts in October, November, late November. Sometimes he might, and clearly if he's with a doe, he's not interested at all. But um, I think you're going to know within, you know, less than 30 seconds if he's like, yep, I'm not putting up with that. I'm going to check it out. I'm aggressive. I want to find out. Uh, and you'll notice those personalities. And I've definitely seen the bucks that are like, I, no matter when I've called to him, I have no interest in getting into a fight. I'm, I'm just not that type of deer and I'm just a timid deer. And that, that makes it, you know, definitely more challenging. Yeah. What about decoys? Is that something, something you're pulling out this time of year at all? Mm, I never have had luck with decoys. My buddies, man, I love decoys. I, I, uh, I've had a lot of luck. I pull them, I pull them in with decoys. I don't, um, I, I would much rather just call to a deer that I see. Um, I don't, you know, part of it's just preference. So it's not a right or a wrong answer. It's just, you know, hauling a decoy out, pain in the butt for me. Uh, I don't want to mess with it. I usually don't, I'll, I'll be honest. I just don't need them. Um, I'm usually trying to hunt spots where I can eat. I know that I'm in a, an area that deer are going to naturally travel past me. Um, or I'm in an area that I have a good chance of calling a deer in. So uh, I feel far more confident for myself. Doesn't mean this is the right answer at all, but I feel more confident for myself that I can have better luck calling a deer in than them seeing a visual reason to come in. And so I've never, I, I, when I was a kid, I tried it a few times. I take that back. So yeah, I have tried it a few times and it's just, it's just not my thing. I don't need it. Um, and I just feel like I'm, I'm more successful with, without it and just hunting the types of spots I do. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, speaking of the types of spots you hunt, you were talking earlier about, you know, you, you walk on a property and see these 10 foot tall ladder stands and and you were wondering how could somebody ever get, get away with that. Um, that got me thinking about a dilemma I often am faced with, and I'm sure lots of hunters are faced with, and I always sit there and debate this back and forth in my head and I want to run it past you and see what your take is. Uh, imagine this scenario. Imagine you are, sneaking into a spot and you don't have a tree stand already set. Maybe this is a new spot you just picked up access to and 
For some reason, you think, man, it's the rut. I got to get in and hunt this new area. It looks really good. And let's hypothetically say maybe you're you're coming up and you're realizing, oh, this looks like an awesome bedding area. And you want to be you know, on the downwind side of it. And you're trying to pick the tree to hunt. And you have a couple options. You've got one tree that is you know, easily in range of those best crossings. Let's say there's a major trail paralleling the downwind edge of this bedding area. And maybe there's two trails coming out of the bedding area and they intersect with that parallel trail, all of them within about 15 or 20 yards of this one tree. And let's say there's a big old hub scrape right there at that intersection too. A couple of rubs coming down the lanes. And this tree though, that's within range of that is like a bean pole. It's a lousy tree for cover. And there's actually also a second trail that's going to be downwind of that tree as well. So it's it's not great cover, and there might be deer that get downwind of you. Or there's another tree, but this tree is going to be like 41 yards away from that scrape and those trails and that great shot opportunity. But it is downwind of everything, and it's a nice oak with like six different limbs coming out at 22 feet. So you can get up in there. You'll be perfectly hidden. Nothing will get downwind of you. Which of those two trees would you pick? The one that's easy range of the best spot, but you might get picked off. You might get winded by a deer. Or do you take the long shot and the super safe bet and hope to call something in or hope you can get that longer shot and make that work? Um. So I think that would be a little subjective on, uh, you know, if I'm going for like, Hey man, I got two days to do this. I'm going to go for the bean pole, the, the bean pole scenario, just because I'm going to get up there and I'm going to understand that I'm sitting in a bean pole and I'm just going to sit incredibly still. And, you know, if I've got time in advance, um, if I found this in the spring or late winter and I scouted and found this spot, I might put a spot in both, both trees and try both scenarios. Um, you know, Hey, I got my safe bet and then I got my other one. But if I'm in that bean pole, you know, if I find that spot early, I'm probably going to go up there, uh, and try and add some cover. Like uh, sometimes I'll hang like cedar branches and stuff up there just way above me or, you know, things to break up my cover. Uh, sometimes I put cedar branches like in the, um, in the front of my tree stand just to try and camouflage myself in. And then I'm, I'm pretty darn good when I know I'm in that situation of just sitting incredibly still, just incredibly still, um, and just doing these just conscious, slow movements, slow movements in my head for scanning. And I usually don't get picked off if I do that. Um, but if, if I'm skylined, I mean, you know, if I know, I, if I know there's no possibility, if I have the feeling there's no possibility, I'm going to draw my bow without this buck seeing me, then I won't hunt it. But if there's any chance, if there's any confidence in me that's like, yes, there is a situation where I can do this, this, and this, and hunt carefully and draw my bow on that mature buck, I'll try it. Um, so I would say probably I will try and make that bean pole tree work. Now, the the extra answer too is if I'm hunting that area year after year, I mean, hopefully I find the third option, which is, you know, a better tree, but uh in this um in this situation, you know, maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll manipulate the trail. I'll go in there with my chainsaw, uh, and try and manipulate their movement or create a trail closer to that more ideal tree. There's a third option. And I do that often. Like, Hey, you know, this tree over here is uh, 10 inches in diameter. It's going to be really hard to sit in it. 
and this one is further. And then, then during the off season, I'm doing things to get them to move closer to that ideal tree, which is habitat manipulation, which is, um, you know, you can do that with chainsaws, with um, weed whippers, with, you know, dumping different trees down to direct their movement. So there's a whole host of of answers there. Um, But on the fly with two days to hunt, uh, I'm up against the gun. I'm going to hunt the bean tree, the bean pole tree, uh, and be very, very careful and just realize, you know, I got two days. If a deer gets downwind of me on that one trail, it's okay. Hopefully I got them dead by that point and hopefully I'm not getting busted much. And then I know if that buck is on that predominant trail, I just got to be super careful so I can draw back and draw back at the right time so I can make that shot. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. All right, Skip, I've got just a couple more questions for you and then we're going to wrap this up. I'm curious if there is anything within your repertoire of hunting tactics, things you do during the rut that your buddies or if other hunters heard about it would think is weird. Is there anything you do during the rut that is off the wall, different than the conventional Uh wisdom? Yeah. Most, most of my friends make fun of me. Hardcore hunters. They make fun of me for how high my tree stands are. (laughs) Uh, like, (laughs) My buddy's like, I'm, I would, I won't hunt that spot. I would never hunt that spot. You're, you're insane. That, uh, that's so high. It's scary. How high are we talking? Um, <laughs> uh, there's the, this is crazy. And I understand there's <laughs> a debate about the shot angle and stuff. The highest I probably have ever hunted in, well, that's, that shot angle's insane. It is, it is. But there's been situations where I've hunted, 35 40s low 40s wow yeah it's up there <laughs> like when i buy those safety lines um and i do have safety lines because i fell out of a tree stand and it was 30 some feet 30 some feet up oh my gosh uh shattered my arm broke my back but this is in the summer while i was hanging it wow and you know just stupid just stupid i've you know now i have safety lines on every stand but a lot of my stands i have to start the the bottom of my safety line where i click in is usually Oh, maybe five to eight feet off the ground. So I would say most of my stands are probably, when I say 40s, that there's like a couple I can think of. And that's usually in Michigan. Because mm-hmm. um, you're just trying to do everything to hide yourself from these deer that are scared out of their mind because everyone's trying to kill them. Literally yeah. everyone. But now I would say my stands are 25 to maybe 35 feet, which is a little off the wall. Um, I would say the other thing I do that's a little off the wall, uh, you know, I probably have now 60, 70 different tree stands. I mean, and there'll be years where I don't hunt certain tree stands. Um, and there's farms that, well, he is 60, 70 tree stands must be nice. I mean, it's anybody can do this. It's just, I took the time to get permission here or, you know, there's this little farm over here. I can pop three in here and if there's a deer there, I'm ready to go. So, um, you know, I just have so many backup plans. I have so, and it, and when I hunted by permission, I would have so many extra farms and I would sit there and just spend weekend after weekend after weekend, knocking on doors, finding more places to go, find an extra state land to hunt that if I had six farms to hunt and three of them got ruined because all of a sudden this group of hunters showed up and just blew the farm up. Okay, 
I'm okay with writing off a whole farm. Like it got ruined. I just, I just always have had so many different backup plans and maybe that's unique. Maybe that's weird. It's, it's intense. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, it's not necessarily fun. I mean, to just, you know, constantly ask people for permission and knocking on doors all the time, but you know, it was fun for me because it was worth it. So, you know, being able to say, Hey, I have three farms here that I'm going to hunt and all of them got ruined. All of them, they're trashed. There's, you know, if 50 guys show up and I go, I, I'm not hunting there. Or if I lose it right before season, Hey, you know, we decided nobody's hunting there. We're going to lease it out or we sold it. If I lose those farms, I'm okay. And I think that's where everybody has to be. Like if your best spots get ruined, you need to have five other best spots. Yeah. And I think that's different maybe than most people. And there's nothing wrong. I'm not, I'm clearly not knocking anybody or telling anybody how to hunt you hunt however you want to, whatever makes you happy. Great. But you know, the guy that's like, Hey man, I got my 80 acres. And that's all I hunt. I, you're just, you're not going to be extremely successful, consistently successful. You just have to have so many different options. And that's, and if you enjoy that, I don't care what I kill. I don't care if I kill a mature buck. I just want to hunt my own 80 acres. It's great. It's just, not what I do. It's not what I want to do. You know, I want to chase mature, mature deer. And to do that, I just have to have so many different options and so many different backup plans. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard to do. It takes a lot of work, but you're right. I mean, if you were to look at any of those folks that are consistently always successful, they have a lot. It's a numbers game. They have a lot of options. They have a lot of spots and they know them well. And they're never dependent on one thing working. They've always got a backup to the backup to the backup. Yeah. And we've gone to Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Illinois. And at the end of the season, I usually got, a, you know, when I was younger, especially, I usually got a few mature bucks. And, oh, my gosh, look at that. You know, guy, I, I would consistently shoot a few mature bucks. Well, there was another between every one of those mature bucks there was probably 10 or 20 hunts that were total flops or, you know, even, I don't care if you watch the guy on TV. I don't care if you, you talk to a guy that you're like, he consistently hit kills mature bucks. Um, they have plenty, plenty of sits where it's a complete flop. It's slow. They don't see anything. They're discouraged. It's boring. I mean, this is how it works. You get, you know, that, that chance to shoot the mature buck, you know, it's a few minutes um, out of generally, you know, maybe a week or two. So I think, you know, people who have their expectations set there that, you know, there's going to be a lot of difficult hunting and a lot of work beforehand that goes into this and a lot of failed hunts before I have one successful hunt. I think when you have those expectations, it puts you, um, you know, it puts you in a place where you can, you can weather it out and keep pushing and, and, and then you don't get discouraged either because I know I'm going to have poor hunts. I know I'm going to make mistakes. And, and when it does work out, then it's more rewarding because I, I honestly wouldn't, I don't want to go out. Honestly, I'm being dead serious. I don't want to go out and shoot a mature buck the very first time I go out. I mean, maybe, maybe in one case I do like, yeah, that'd be awesome. But I think I, I enjoy it more because I went out seven times and I wasn't successful. And then when you do get the opportunity at the mature buck, it's just like, it's why we do this. It's amazing. I mean, it's rewarding. You're just like, man, it finally worked out. And that's what's so, 
Um, that's why I love this. Cause it's like, man, I went through, I went through all these tough hunts, all this, all this work and it finally paid off and you know, this worked out and you know, and if I don't get a mature buck, if I eat my tag, I'm okay with that now too. But, um, yeah, that, that's just kind of my philosophy or my thought process, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's just where my head's at. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, skip one last scenario. I want you to imagine. And it's not it's not a great scenario, so bear with me here. But let's say for some reason, uh, I've taken away your entire hunting season except for two days during the rut. You get two days to hunt during the rut, and that's all for the entire season this year. All right. What I would like you to do is tell me what two days you'll pick during the rut. Like what date would you want for this two day window? They could either be right next to each other, or they could be separate days. And then I would like you to tell me what your setup would be like specifically as best as you can describe this could either be like a hypothetical imaginary scenario or you could even describe for me a stand you actually have that you think would give you your best chance on that date could you do that for these two days for me yep i would say it's just going to be a date range so for whatever reason i've had my best luck in october and then for whatever reason this is maybe a superstition i don't know uh, November one through three or four, when my buddy's like, that's when I have my best. Like I, I never shoot big deer November one through four. So I'd ax those right out. Um, just because maybe I'm cursed with those dates. I don't know. <laughs> so it's going to be between, uh, November four and 10. And each year shifts a little bit different. Sometimes like, man, it was a little better earlier, but I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to whittle that down even a little bit further. I'm going to say between, I'm going to say seven, seven to 11. And within seven to 11, I'm just going to pick the days where the temperature goes down and the barometer is up. And if it's the eighth, I'll hunt it on the eighth. If it's the ninth, I'll hunt it on the ninth. If it's warm on the eighth, I'm not hunting the eighth. So whichever date is going to be cold, those are the two days I pick. Okay. Cold, cold, and um, it, so a decrease in temperature and a rise in the barometer. Where I'm going to hunt is I can visualize these spots in my mind. Uh, with that, um, with that limited of time, I want to hunt the spots that are just the deep spots I have in the timber, and I have two of them that come to mind. That it's just like it is just like the um, the hornet's nest. You know, it's just like there's not two trails that intersect or two trails I can see from my stand. There's like 10 and they're just coming from every which direction. And it's just one of these magic spots that just, it just, they exist all over. It's just hard to find them, but it's a spot where, you know, I've got, I've got a spot where I've killed three or four mature bucks. And every time I, I hunt there, I could shoot just a pile of bucks, a pile and not necessarily old, but you know, there's 10 trails that come through there and for whatever reason, they all kind of intersect around this tree stand. So I really don't even need to call and they're coming from every which direction. And that's the spot I was talking about where my thermals rise. Mm, but yeah. even if my thermals didn't rise, I don't mind being back in the timber. And I say, you know what? I'm not even going to check the wind direction. If I, if I have trails coming from every which direction, I'm going to give up some. There is going to be a spot from my tree stand where deer are going to get downwind where I'm, it's going to cause issues. 
but I'm going to be as scent free as possible um, and just say, you know what, that's a lost area if they get to this spot. So be, so be it. Um, but when you have those spots where, you know, there's so many different trails intersecting there. And then on top of that, you just look at every one of these trails and there's scrapes, there's rubs. Um, and you just know any deer in that area that's traveling has a pretty darn good likelihood likelihood of going through this area. And I also can see, you know, from this stand and from the other one I'm, I'm visualizing, uh, I can see about maybe 300 yards in every direction. So if they weren't to come by my stand, now I have, you know, you know, 600 yard radius of what I can see. And, and then I'm just on pins and needles scanning the whole morning, the whole afternoon, the whole day. And I'd sit there the whole day. Um, and if I see something I can't call or that's not coming in, I try and call them in, uh, in those days in November. And, you know, it'd be my very, very best spots deep in the timber, um, where I, you know, I call it a hornet's nest. I call it a whatever, just, just kind of like a, it's just kind of that perfect spot. I think folks could probably visualize visualize it in their mind where, you know, man, every time I go there, I just see a lot of bucks. And, you know, I think a lot of folks get into the habit of, I got to hunt that stand over and over and over and they ruin it, um, which I don't. But here in this scenario, I can just hunt it two days and that's where I'm going to be. And I probably, I got two spots in my mind like that. I probably would just take the better one, which is the very first one. It's probably the best spot. I've ever had. And hopefully everybody out there can eventually be like, man, this is the coolest spot I've ever found. doesn't mean, you know, I mean, I've killed mature bucks, you know, every year, just about, but, uh, and only killed three or four out of this spot, but it's still um, probably one of those spots that sticks out into my mind. Like this can't be beat. This is just one of the coolest spots. And, and I know every time I sit there, I'm going to see, I'm going to see a vast amount of mature bucks. So, it's just one of those high probability spots where the traffic's there, the signs there, it's all there. And I'm just going to go all in all my cards, all my chips and uh, sit there all day. And I'll probably do it both of those days. Sounds like a good plan. Skip. I, uh, I hope you do find either that spot or some spot for you in these coming weeks where the big boy rolls through for you. I'm, uh, I'm very appreciative. You took the time to share all this stuff with us today. I hope everybody else does too. And you know, uh, at 44 after doing this for a while um you know if if it works out it's fantastic i uh i had a long farm season and this is actually the time i get to take a break um but i've got family and friends i want to get on some big deer and uh if i eat a tag this year i eat a tag that's just my expectations but yeah i'm just i'm just super super looking forward to get out being being in the timber and i hope um Right. I, I know your listeners are too. I mean, it's the magic time of year. This is what we've waited for and it's here and I uh, wish everybody the best of luck. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Skip. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right. And that is a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of this show here today. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a thing or two. Hopefully you laughed a little bit there at the beginning and I'm hoping you have got some great rut hunting plans ahead of you. Maybe you're listening to this on the way to the stand. Maybe you're listening to this on the drive home with a big buck in the back of your truck. Fingers crossed. Hoping that's the case. And I'm hoping until next time, you will stay wired to hunt. 
Hey guys, this is Hayden Samak, uh, engineer for Wired to Hunt. If you were listening to Rutfresh Radio the other day, uh, you might remember a conversation about November being the most wonderful time of the year and how somebody should write the song, the most wonderful time of the year, in relation to, uh, in relation to the rut. Well, Mark is in the field, and because he can't do anything about it, I took it upon myself to record just that song with our very own Phil the Engineer on what can only be described as a sultry lead vocal. And with that, I give you the most wonderful time to kill deer. Boys, good to see you. Hayden, it's been a while. Hey, sorry I'm late. I crashed my Pontiac Aztec into a light pole and had to walk the rest of the way, but I'm here now. That's what matters. Give me a glass of scotch, please, Hayden. Just two rocks in there. I don't like ice. We're starting already. This is happening. Okay, just give me the, give me the glass. Thank you. Okay, here we go. It's the most wonderful time to kill deer With the rut now just starting and dashing and dotting and lanes cut and cleared It's the most wonderful time to kill deer There's far too much ice in this glass It's the half-happiest season of all There's gotta be at least 12 cues with grunting and bleeding and cold fronts and sleeting the last weeks of fall. It's the half-happiest season of all. There'll be pictures for posting and bragging and boasting in truck beds with big bucks in tow. There'll be narrow missed stories and tales of near glories of booner bucks missed with our bows. It's the most wonderful time to kill deer. Not just one, maybe two. There'll be no doze of blowing and luminox glowing and blood trail so clear. It's the most wonderful time to kill deer. Hey, excuse me, can I have a napkin, please? I just spilled some scotch on my loafers. I can't have dirty loafers in the studio. Yeah, well, thank you. Tailgate beers for drinking and big bucks a slinking and chasing and scent checking does. They'll be fighting and scraping and no more escaping and arrow shot true hitting home. No, key change? What? No one told me that. It's the most wonderful time to kill deer. I was very unprepared for this. There'll be much morning sitting in cold fronts are hitting the dawn crisp and clear. It's the most wonderful time. Oh, the most wonderful time. Yes, the most wonderful time to kill There's too much ice in the glass. Two rocks! I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.